If people could just get their diet to 30% of their calories from protein, basically entire obesity and diabetes epidemics would collapse. You can literally cure almost every pre-diabetic or diabetic out there with 30% of calories from protein. That should probably be everybody's number one concern when it comes to diet. This is Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast, and I am your host, Bet Lucas. I am a mom of six crazy kids, I work as a VP in a fast-paced industry, and I've been on a health journey. But what does living your big, bold life even mean? Living boldly is having the courage to finally listen and do what your heart has been trying to tell you all along. Maybe it's to take back your health, write the book, go for the job, run the race. And I'm here to help you listen to that voice and to remind you to be you boldly. The world needs you. Hello, welcome to Living Your Big Bold Life podcast. So what eating lifestyle is best? Is it carnivore, vegan, keto, paleo, low carb? I mean, which one? The thing I appreciate about Dr. Naaman is he kind of doesn't care what eating lifestyle you follow. He just wants you to pursue protein. And that's why I had him back today. He was my guest on episode 15 and 16. So if you enjoyed today's episode and want to learn more from Dr. Naaman, I highly recommend you check those episodes out. Now, there are a few light bulb moments that I want you to have today when listening to Dr. Naaman. Number one. If you are not pleased with your body composition and want to reduce your percentage of body fat, a great way to do that is reducing the fat in your diet and increasing your protein percentage. For those of you who've listened to my podcast for the past year, you're going to say, bet, but you love fat. You eat fat. You encourage real fat. And I would say back to you, agree, agree, agree. But I always tell you to try to build your plate around a protein. My plate is not built around a fat. For me, fat is a lever. Fat helps my food taste a little bit better. It can be a powerful tool. However, like any tool, it can be overused and overdone. And I think that's what Dr. Naaman wants you to think about. If you are following a low-carb diet but not getting the results you want, Maybe you've pushed your fats too high and your protein too low. I also love how he shares about how carnivore can get away with a little bit more fat, but maybe a paleo or or someone eating a little bit higher carb diet can't get away with as much fat. So I think that's pretty enlightening because we all eat differently. We all follow different lifestyles and different things work for different people. But I think you're going to have that light bulb moment of like, oh, that's why this works for me, but doesn't work for Sally. Or that's why this works for me, but doesn't work for Tim. Also, he does share a recommendation on protein grams per day. And I think it's real easy. Effectively, it's a one-to-one ratio on your ideal body weight. So if your ideal body weight is 150 pounds, an ideal protein gram target for you would be 150 grams. Now, 
you can dial that up or dial that back based on your kind of body composition goals. But at least that's a good starting point, right? And he talks more about that today. But to me, the real nugget here, the real gem is that he shares that it's not just about protein volume. So it's not just about that plate being more and more full with more and more stuff. It's about that protein percentage So that plate, just having a higher percentage of protein, not essentially you eating more volume. That's kind of a light bulb moment for a lot of us because I think when some of us try to pursue protein, we don't know exactly how to do it. And sometimes we just think, well, that's just so much food. And a lot of times it's like, no, we're not talking more volume. We're just talking percentage. And that's why that opening quote from Dr. Naiman is so incredibly powerful. I also want to remind you on this show that you're not going to agree with all my guests. You're not going to agree with me all of the time. Heck, I don't agree with me all of the time, right? (laughs) So what I do hope is that we all listen to each other. We learn from each other and we evolve. And really, if we could all just do that each and every day, wouldn't we be better for it? And what a mistake we've made to say that we all need to be the same. No, we all just want to continue to listen, learn, and evolve together, right? And one of my favorite sayings is, imperfect me, bolder you, better us. And that's what I want. I'm not perfect. I don't know all the things. Dr. Naimud would totally tell you. Actually, he said this in one of his interviews. I don't know everything and I'm still learning too. And maybe some of the things I think today, I won't think tomorrow. How freeing is that? You have that right too. So let's listen, let's learn, and let's evolve together. And lastly, I want to leave you with this. I hope as you're pursuing your health and wellness goals, that you're doing it because you love your body, not because you hate it. And you can fill in the blank there. I fast today because I love my body, not because I hate it. I eat healthy today because I love my body, not because I hate it. I move today because I love my body, not because I hate it. So what are you going to do to love your body today? And maybe one of them is to listen and learn and evolve with Dr. Naaman. Here he is. Hi, Dr. Naiman. Welcome back to Living Your Big Bold Life podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. Oh, wow. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Well, on our prior interview, we tackled what was better. Was it keto? Is it low carb? Is it vegetarian? And really, as I look back on that interview, you gave us some tactical tools on ways to increase our protein, no matter kind of what diet or lifestyle we follow. And today, really what I want to do is dive into all things protein and why you believe protein matters. What are some mistakes that people make when they pursue a higher protein diet? Maybe some tips that you might have as really an expert in this field. So I guess without further ado, the question of the day is, Why does protein matter to you? Why do you think it is so important for us all to hear the importance of protein? Protein, first of all, you know, if you look in the medical literature, every single ad lib study ever published in the history of medical literature anywhere, like where people ate as many calories as they want, the very 
first thing that every one of these studies has to do is fix protein percents. If you're comparing diets, you always have to fix protein at the exact same percentage. Um, that's just rule number one of nutrition studies. You have to fix the protein percentage. And that should have been our first clue that protein percentage is probably the single most important metric of anybody's diet when it comes to how many calories are you going to eat when you're eating to satiety. <clears throat> so I really got introduced to this protein leverage hypothesis by doctors Rabenheimer and Simpson, these uh, Australian professors who've been researching this for decades, pretty much in other animal species initially and then in humans. They're entomologists and they studied protein leverage in insects and uh, smaller um, <clears throat> organisms. They've looked at fish, they've looked at birds, they've looked at primates, they've looked at dogs and cats, and, and then they kind of culminated their uh, research looking at humans. And basically, you can look at ad-lib diets, which means you eat as much as you want. And the higher the protein percentage of an ad-lib diet, the fewer energy calories humans eat in a perfectly linear fashion. And Drs. Rabenheimer and Simpson did this amazing meta-analysis where they looked at 116 different studies where humans ate ad-lib calories. They just gave someone a diet and said, eat as much as you want. And they graphed it all out versus protein percentage. And it's just this perfectly linear straight line um, where, the, you know, all the way from about 10, 5 or 10% protein up to 50% protein, the higher the protein percentage of your diet by calories, the less calories you're going to eat automatically. Uh, so we have all of these things, all of these lines of evidence coming together. If you look at bodybuilders, if you analyze the diets of bodybuilders, bikini models, fitness models, all of your Instagram people, if you actually enter everything they eat and calculate it, they're typically at about 40% protein by calories. Most of your bodybuilders okay. and your permaline people who are on Instagram, um, you know, just showing off their body composition on a regular basis, they're stuck at about 40% protein, maybe uh, mid-30s for some of them, and maybe as high as 50% in some. But you're all you're definitely dealing with this north of 30, 35 percent protein right. by calories. Um, if you look at protein percentage for the past 60 years of the obesity epidemic in both America and globally, it's just been steadily falling. You know, we were at maybe 15 percent protein and now we're down to 12 and a half percent protein. And that doesn't sound like a really huge shift, but the protein is geared about 10 to one. So for every you know, 1% decrease in protein percentage, you're going to eat 10% more non-protein energy calories. It's very uh, steeply geared. Uh, the protein, that's how protein leverage works. It's basically an order of magnitude where you eat 1% less protein, you eat 10% more non-protein energy calories. And so we've just steadily diluted the protein in our whole food supply with refined carbs and refined fats. That's basically the problem. Any uh, high energy density refined carb like sugar and flour or high energy density refined fat like butter and oil and heavy cream. You uh, dilute out all the protein in your food environment. Uh, you're eating a lower protein percent foods by calorie and you just automatically overeat them. And uh, that's why the entire planet is basically over fat. 91% of humans on earth are over fat now, mostly because of protein dilution <clears throat> and this falling protein percentage. 
So you can literally look at every study ever published in the history of medical literature at protein percent. It's the number one factor when you look at the calorie intake. You can look at all this beautiful work by Raubenheimer and Simpson, uh, which is conserved in pretty much every animal species you can name from insects all the way up to people. And it all just really fits together that probably for the average person, protein percentage of your diet is probably the single biggest lever you can pull when it comes to body composition, but that also equals health because all of your metabolic syndrome and your type 2 diabetes is basically having too much fat and not enough lean mass. And so body composition and health overlap almost completely most of the time, unless you're getting really, really stage lean as a bodybuilder. And so protein percentage is probably just the single biggest thing that anyone can focus on. And that's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm focusing on protein. That's why I think it's something that we just need to look at more and talk about more. I think you are so right on here. And actually, when I came across your work, the light bulb really went off because not only were you encouraging people to prioritize protein, but you were kind of challenging this notion that you needed to push your protein and push your fat, that that the fat could be a different kind of lever. So when you are kind of pushing your PE ratio and explaining this to people, what do you share when it comes to, hey, yes, I want you to increase your protein, but I want you to be cautious of this when it comes to pushing your protein. What are some tips that you provide there? Gotcha. Okay, so I think what a lot of people don't realize is how fat is just passively overconsumed without really contributing much to uh, hunger, fullness, or uh, satiety. Uh, fat, you know, the thermic effect of fat is lower than carbs or protein. Uh, it basically every gram of fat you eat, statistically speaking, just ends up in your fat cells, um, where it's probably increasing the energy density of your food so you have less weight and volume to your food. It's uh, not particularly um, acutely satiating the way carbs can be in the short term. It's not giving you this uh, medium uh, uh, postprandial satiety that protein does. That's the really strong point of protein is this satiety per calorie. And so fat is something that the low-carb world basically realized, oh, hey, carbs are bad because we have so many refined carbs and we're all eating 300 grams of carbs a day and it's diluting out. It's, uh, I mean, like, we shouldn't be eating this many carbs. And that is totally correct. Like the low-carb community recognized this and nailed it. Boom. But for some reason, we just instinctively knew that everybody just always eats the same protein percentage. So when you go down in carbs, you have to go up in fat. There, You know, it's carbs versus fat. It's a seesaw. And we, we kind of forgot about the protein leverage. Like we forgot about the fact that, oh, you could actually trade your carbs in for more protein and you'd have higher satiety per calorie and better body composition and all this stuff. So, so I think the question you asked me is when you're lowering your carbohydrate, how do you bring your protein up and not your fat up? And there's just one simple, easy answer to that. And that is choose le leaner proteins. So every meal should be centered around protein. Protein should be primary. All your meals should be centered around protein. All your snacks should be centered around protein. Your whole diet should be built upon 
protein, getting your protein target. Where's the protein? It should all be centered on protein. And the problem with just food preparation and cooking in general is it's really, really easy to add fat to anything, yeah. right? I can take the leanest protein in the world, just like some shrimp or something. But by the time I, you know, cook it in butter and add a sauce and put some cheese on top of it and have a side dish that's more carb, carby and fatty, uh, by the time I'm done, the protein percentage is not that high. So it's trivially, criminally easy to add fat to every protein you're cooking. It's easy to add carbs to every protein you're cooking. And so what you do is you just start out with a leaner protein because you can always add fat to it. You just, you know, uh, make a cream sauce, make a butter sauce, put some cheese on there. Like you can add a crap ton of fat. Now, if you already started out with a fattier protein and you do any kind of cooking process that adds fat to it, uh, you're basically going nowhere. Like you've just ended up at a lower protein percentage you're going to passively overconsume fat. It's not going to really contribute very much to satiety or thermic effect of food. And all of that fat is just going to passively end up in your fat cells. It's not that beneficial. At some point, you'd be better off eating some carbohydrate, which might give you higher satiety per calorie if you're on a really low carb diet. You know, you could eat your, um, you know, a couple cups of strawberries or something and get a little bit of carbohydrate and have way higher satiety than if you just had a fattier meat that you bought from the store, you know what I mean, versus a leaner one. So my advice to most people is choose leaner proteins. It's that simple. There's absolutely nothing wrong with getting an ultra lean protein and then adding fat to it. You could actually cook chicken breasts. You know, it's easy to add fat to that. You could cook uh, uh, shrimp. It's, uh, you know, 97% protein, but it's really easy to add fat to that. You can always add fat. You can't really take fat away. It's, it's pretty hard to do. So my number one advice to everyone, center your meals around protein, center your snacks around protein. Don't be afraid to get a leaner protein because it's so easy to add fat to it. In fact, that's almost too easy. Yeah. You know, I was reading in one of the groups the other day and someone did the recommendation of saying, instead of just always thinking red meat, red meat, red meat, try to think surf and turf more. And that approach, it sounds really simplistic, but it's really helped me because I notice I tend to lean towards hamburger and steak. And I love all of those things and I have them in my diet and they're great. But I noticed with me, the pendulum had swung so far that I was forgetting about, hey, tuna is a great option. Hey, shrimp is a great option. Chicken is great too, you know? And so I've tried to kind of think of that um, a little bit more surf and turf. You know, I've been trying to put scallops, you know, as, a, as an option in our week, you know, just different things that I think a lot of us who either went low carb or keto, we kind of forgot about those things for some reason. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't right. mean that the red meat is all bad either, but just a few tweaks there and adding some leaner protein, I think you can get pretty dramatic results with just that simple tweak that a lot of people have kind of aren't even thinking about. Right, right, yeah. No, I think you're right. Like uh, the pendulum swung all the way to the other direction where uh, more fat was actually better. Like if carbs are bad, fat is good. If fat's good, more fat's even more better. And uh, the, the carnivore thing adds a little wrinkle to it, where if you're eating absolutely zero grams of carbs, you do legitimately need more fat. Right. Um, 
And so you do legitimately need fatter meat. So you have people who are eating zero carbs who are like, okay, I just buy the fattiest meat I can and I'm pretty much fine. Well, if you're eating any carbohydrate at all, you cannot buy and eat the fattiest meat you can find because you're just not going to hit your body composition goals. And so, you know, for most people who are omnivores, because, you know, humans are omnivores, uh, who are eating some amount of carbohydrate and have an appetite for some amount of carbohydrate, you want to be shaving that fat lower because otherwise, if you eat the same ultra fatty, um, fat fetishing, uh, pure carnivore cuts of meat that uh, you're, you see on the carnivore people eating, uh, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble. That's just, you know, basically the protein percent is too low. The energy calories are too high. And like you said, anything from the ocean is awesome. Like seafood's awesome. Anything, if it came out of the ocean, it's amazing. All of your fish, all your shrimp, all your seafood, your shellfish, your uh, fantastic, like spectacular nutrient density, super high protein energy ratio, um, super low energy density, super low calories. Like everything's exactly the way you'd want it. Like tons of minerals, tons of satiety per calorie. And so... Yeah, surf and turf, bring it on. I'm all about that. Um, Even if you just traded in some of your like super fatty red meat for anything out of the ocean, that would be a massive win for most people. Uh, You probably need the omega-3s anyway. You know, go for it, definitely. Yeah, we are a little spoiled. You know, Ted and I are both from the Northwest, so we get a little spoiled on our access to it. But I mean, this time of year, we can get so much wonderful fresh seafood. And But I know people in other parts of the world have different types, but clams and mussels. And um, I'm a big Dungeness crab fan. For us people in the Northwest, we're a little biased. We think it's, well, I think it's one of the best. I don't know, Ted, what's your favorite kind of crab? I have to test you here. Oh, yeah, I do love the Dungeness crab. That, that stuff is amazing. And uh yeah, my, my grandparents are from Squim up in the oh, peninsula. Yeah. And so, like, I've eaten tons of that. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're also, we're very lucky and we're very biased here in the Pacific Northwest. And also, like, you can't just, you, you drive your car down the road in a rainstorm and, like, salmon are jumping into your car. Like, <laughs> you're basically, we're just surrounded by wild Alaskan salmon everywhere. And it's just amazing and it's inexpensive. And actually the protein percent is, you know, your wild Alaskan salmon is like 75% protein or something amazing, but your farmed Atlantic salmon is, is super fatty. It might be 40% protein. It's just like way worse. Uh, The, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is worse. The fat content's higher. The protein ratio levels worse. It's almost like two different, um, totally different foods, which is unfortunate. So like you really do want to get the wild caught if you can, like it might have double the protein percentage of your farm uh, Atlantic stuff, unfortunately. And I know, I know I'm like super like geographically snobbish right now because we are surrounded by so much amazing food up here in the Pacific Northwest. We really are. And I have to remember that because and appreciate it. And so um, another favorite that's super random out there that most people in the world have never heard of, but I'm sure you have, is uh, razor clams. Um, Have you ever had razor clams? Yeah, those are amazing too. Yeah, Yeah, super fun to go dig on the coast and Mm -hmm. they're really fun to cook up. 
and uh, in, unless you're frying them up with uh, lots of flour and, and, and butter, maybe not mm-hmm. the best choice. But so that brings us to another one that I get so many questions on is what are some of your favorite proteins? Maybe your top 10. So we've kind of touched on some of the the more obvious ones, you know, red meat and anything from the ocean. What are some other ones that you like to point out to people when they're grocery shopping or they're at a restaurant to not forget about? Well, so we've been taught in the low carb community to demonize it, but I'm actually a huge fan of low fat or even fat free dairy. I mean, fat free fermented dairy is amazing. You're your, you know, Faye Zero Greek yogurt or any kind of low-carb and low-fat Greek yogurt is amazing. Um, your lower-fat cottage cheese is amazing. Um, so any kind of low-fat, low-carb fermented dairy is great. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of all of those. And, uh, you know, I know that... Um, you know, if you're if you're like a religious paleoite, oh well, it's you know it's agriculture. It's dairy's bad. Agriculture's bad. Um, dairy's inflammatory. It's just automatically bad somehow. It's a processed food. Yeah, I mean, honestly, humans, our whole existence, we've used technology to feed ourselves. We've used processing to feed ourselves, and so we're we're literally evolved to eat. Uh, technology produced and processed foods. That's what we do. And uh, low fat, low carb fermented dairy is just an amazing uh, nutritional value, which we've created with technology. And that's just what humans do. That's how we got these huge brains for these tiny little GI tracts is using technology. And so there's nothing wrong with that. And so I've really jumped off the, I was a religious paleo for the longest and I've just completely backed away from that. I'm trying to be agnostic uh, and non-religious. And so uh, low fat dairy is absolutely not inflammatory. This is not an inflammatory food. That's total garbage that no one can prove that at all. Um, And so I love that stuff. And I feel like a lot of people in the paleo, low carb, keto sphere, either eat no dairy or high fat dairy or just butter or whatever. I'm also not afraid of whey protein, whey powder uh, or casein or one of these. So you're telling me it's okay to just skim all the fat off of the milk and process that and isolate that and make butter out of it. That's okay, just the pure milk fat, but it's not okay to just take all the protein out of it, all the whey or the casein. Yeah, no, I'm gonna push back about that really, really hard. So everyone's just like cooking everything in sticks of grass with butter, but a whey powder somehow bad. I really don't think so. Um, So yeah, I think that's one big category that people are missing out on and uh, uh, and I think we've covered the other ones. I, you know, I love um, I love grass-fed beef uh, or any kind of grass-fed ruminant is awesome. And, yeah. it, and if it's grass-fed and grass-finished, it's automatically going to have a better protein-energy ratio. Um, I love anything that comes out of the ocean, basically anything at all. Phenomenal. Um, I'm also not afraid of uh, poultry. So, like, uh, interestingly, if you... If you're worried about conventionally raised poultry and omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, uh, choose leaner choose, choose leaner cuts. Your skinless chicken breast, uh, 
it has such little fat in it that the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio does not even matter. It's not much of a factor because it's almost pure protein. So, uh, yeah, I'm not afraid of eating chicken breasts. Uh, it's, that's, the protein percent is too high of just chicken breast by itself. You can't live off on that. But it is so easy to add fat to it that it's really not a problem or add carbs to it. This is your opportunity to pour more carbs into your diet. If you eat, um, a lot of people are extreme carbophobes in our community. But guess what? If you started out with a really lean protein like a chicken breast, uh, the fat is so low that isocalorically you can eat a crap ton of carbs and still end up at the same place. And if you're somebody who's on a zero-carb diet and you eat, you know, like one baked potato, that your satiety per calorie is going to be huge because you hardly ever eat this stuff. So you're actually better off trading in some of your fat every day for a little bit of carbohydrate because humans have an appetite for carbohydrate and you're probably going to be hungrier until you eat that. So, you know, my favorite thing to do is just start with lean proteins and then I'll have a meal that's higher in fat and lower in carbs. So I'll have like a bunch of eggs uh, or steak uh, with, uh, you know, much higher fat content and I'll keep the carbs low there. And then I'll have another meal later with like a chicken breast and potatoes or even rice or something like that, um, where I'm getting more carbohydrate and the fat's really low. So isocalorically, it's basically just as good. Right. I actually think that's fascinating. And I'm seeing where no matter what type of, of lifestyle you follow, the light bulb kind of goes off here because it's kind of like, why does the low fat kind of perspective work for a lot of people? And why does the low, low carb, high fat work for some people? And I think that's where the light bulb kind of goes off here. And I love how you've kind of mm-hmm. found a balanced approach to and a really doable approach for I think most people, which is okay, yeah, maybe dial back your fat a little bit, especially if you're over fat. You know, if, if you don't have fat to lose, okay, you can play with that a little bit more, right? But a lot of us do have maybe additional fat we want to burn on our body. And so I love that that approach. So when you're isolating those meals, just to make sure that I understand, you may do a little bit higher fat, high protein, but with a little bit more fat meal and keep that meal really low carb. And then your next meal, you might go high protein, but a little bit more, more carb, but keep it really low fat. Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. And and really all I'm trying to do is avoid a, just a higher energy density carb and fat together. So like your, you know, your buttered toast, you're going to eat way more toast than just as dry toast. Or your uh, baked potato with like sour cream and butter on it, you're going to eat way more of that than you are just a plain potato. So I'm just trying to slightly insulate the higher energy density carbs and fat to each other. Now, if it's a low energy density carb and a fat, it's no big deal. Like I'll eat a salad and avocado. That's like some carbs and some fats, but the energy density is super low. You know, the salad is like 5% carbohydrate and the avocados. 10% 10% fat. And so there's so lo- such a low energy density that I don't really care. Right. But if it's high energy density carbs and fats, I'm trying not to combine them directly together because that's like ice cream and candy bars and uh, potato chips and that kind of thing. And what would be examples, a few more examples? So when people hear this low energy density versus high energy density carbs, 
Could you give a few more examples of low energy versus high energy density cars? Absolutely. So low energy density would be any basically any real food, like any any fruits, any vegetables, anything that you could just go out and find in nature. That's going to automatically be a low energy density carb or fat. Like avocado, an avocado is mostly fat, but it's only 10% fat by weight. Oil is 100% fat by weight. 100 grams of oil is 100 grams of fat. 100 grams of avocado is only 10 grams of fat. So that's, even though that's a high fat food, it's a super low energy density food. So just, you know, you can basically eat as much as you want. I don't have to worry about, am I combining it with carbs or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Pretty much any fruit is going to be low energy density. Who cares? Any vegetable, even like a potato is fairly low energy density. It's one calorie per gram. The reason the potato hack works is because potatoes are one calorie per gram, which is really low. You can eat five pounds of potatoes and it's only 2000 calories. Actually, if they're boiled potatoes, you could, you could eat, you know, 10 pounds of potatoes for 2000 calories. So, so it, it really dramatically scales up if the water content's higher. So basically any kind of fruit or vegetable is a low energy density carb you don't have to worry about. What you have to worry about is something that's been processed and refined to have a higher energy density like butter and cheese and heavy cream. These are all higher energy density um, fats. Also, like same thing in the carb world, your fruits and vegetables are fine, but your sugar is not so good. Your flour is not so good. You've got quadruple the energy density there. And so that starts getting problematic when you mix like butter and sugar and flour together and make shortbread out of it. You're going to eat like way, way, way more of it. That makes total sense to me. And I think that's really helpful because I think some people say, okay, but what is low energy? What is high energy? So thank you for those examples. And I loved your point on dairy. What's been interesting for me personally, and um, I realize I'm a case study of one, is that, you know, when I keep my dairy to primarily Greek yogurt or cottage cheese, then I seem to have great results. If I go a little too much into heavy whipping cream, that direction too much, I notice, uh, you know, my results may stall or I may not you know, be eating the way my body, uh, the, the goals that I want to get for my body. So it's interesting, but heavy whipping cream, when I took that out of my diet, you know, I was having that in my coffee, that simple tool of just removing heavy whipping cream. I still have butter. I still have Greek yogurt. I still have cottage cheese. I'm not scared of those things, but that seemed to really make a difference to me. And I realized that we're all different, but I think a lot of us maybe overdoing kind of our cream in the coffee. And I, mm-hmm. I talk about that a lot. And maybe it's more of a, um, a mom thing. You know, we're sipping on our coffee in the morning and we just keep having a cup of coffee and we keep adding some cream, unknowingly having a lot. And so I think, you know, I always am kind of pushing for, you know, heavy whipping cream isn't bad, but if you can just drink your coffee black for a while and just take a break, I guarantee you may see some pretty dramatic differences pretty quickly. I, I just, I don't know if you've seen the same with you or your patients or other people you talk to. Uh, this is the same thing with me, with my patient, everybody's the same way. Basically, it's way too easy to overconsume fat grams with heavy whipping cream. Yes. You know, you're drinking it, so the satiety is already pretty low. Uh, you can just consume a 
billion grams of fat with heavy whipping cream. It's it's pretty dangerous. It's like, like they're honestly, I had to stop buying it. It's not in my fridge right now. Me too. Um, I, had I can't to. have it. It's yeah. way too good. And I'll tell you what, you uh, whip that stuff up with some sugar and I will eat my body weight in whipped cream. <laughs> like it is the most dangerous food of all. And uh, <laughs> it's so tasty. You're going to eat way too much of it. So yeah, heavy, heavy whipping cream. I had to say goodbye to that, unfortunately. Me too. Me too. And you know, what's interesting is that I'll still have like a cup of coffee and in late the day, but if now I see it, if it, if I ever have it, it's a treat. It's not a given. It's not my daily routine. And maybe I go out to a restaurant and I end a meal with it. It's like more like a dessert now. And mm-hmm. it used to be just my daily thing in a large part of my day. And it's interesting when I tell people, just make this small change. You would think I'm asking to take their firstborn. You know, they're like, not my coffee, not my cream. But, you know, after a while, you kind of reset your habits. And what used to be an everyday thing is really now can be a treat or you just stop buying it. And I think that's a Mm -hmm. great tool because I know some people want to say, well, I don't want to do that. I have self-control. I think if there is a food that is affecting you and your health journey, you know, stop buying it. Just take a break from it. And, you know, you and I tackled alcohol last time we were together. And, you know, something that we've tried to do is just not buy as much wine and have it on hand. Because if it's here, guess what? Someone drinks it or someone comes over for dinner or, you know what? It's just too easy. And so I think that that kind of, tool on heavy whipping cream can be applied to any food uh, that can kind of maybe stall or, or inhibit you from getting to your health goals. Nuts. You know, we talked mm-hmm. about nuts last time. Nuts are yeah. great, but sometimes I overeat them. I don't know. Do you? Right. <laughs> I, I basically don't eat nuts. I can't eat nuts. I, I don't. Them. I, I, I just can't have, I used to have just bags of macadamia nuts everywhere. I I lived. It was in my car, it was in my office, it was in my pantry. I cannot do that. Um, you're right. If there's a problem food, it, it really starts with buying it. Just don't buy it. Don't if you buy don't it. buy it, you don't have it. If you don't have it, you're not going to eat it. Um, but you have to buy other stuff that's around that you can eat because you're otherwise you're going to be starving. So uh, you have to find something you can eat, buy the hell out of that, and then just don't buy the thing that's kind of messing with you. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Another food that... Uh, I've heard you talk about that I love is uh, the PB Fit powder, the peanut butter powder. And um, I kind of do a take where I make almost like it feels like a peanut butter and jelly where I put my Greek yogurt, the PB Fit, which I know you do, and then maybe some fruit with it, maybe a really small dollop of like a low sugar, even jam. Like I'll do a very small dollop of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe add some hemp seeds. I've really found that that feels very dessert-like to me. That Mm -hmm. feels like a great treat. So instead of, hey, don't buy the ice cream, that can really fit there. And that that peanut butter powder has a really good protein ratio with very pretty low fat, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you get like a sugar-free PB Fit, it's almost like a protein powder supplement. I mean, you can almost use it like a whey powder. It's, It's so high in protein. It's phenomenal. Hey, friends. It's Bet. 
If you are enjoying today's podcast, I really hope you will join me every week for what I hope you find are inspiring interviews and bold content on topics like family and career and health. And can I also ask you a favor? Can you press that subscribe button and write a review if you like what you hear today? By doing those things, you are helping me get the word out. And I truly would be ever, ever so grateful. It also allows you to be the first to know when new content arrives. So please subscribe today. Now, let's get back to our guests. And another thing on the back to the whey powder that you were talking about one time is how you've incorporated that when you're making kind of foods that have traditionally been like a flour-based food. So I, I think you did even like a pancake or a waffle, kind of rethinking that, hey, if you, maybe you have kids at home or maybe you want to have kind of a treat, it may it feel like a treat. You've just found ways to use that whey protein in addition to maybe some eggs and, and other ingredients to kind of replace the flour for like pancakes or other things like that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And, and honestly, the, the bodybuilders uh, and the fitness people have been doing this forever. So I'm just way behind the curve on it. But like these people figured out how to achieve fat loss, you know, 100 years ago. And everybody else is just playing catch up, including myself. And so uh, I encourage people to, you know, if you see someone who's effortlessly staying lean year round, uh, your Instagram models, your fitness people, pay attention to what they're actually eating. And uh, the first thing you'll notice is an insanely high protein percentage, frequently because they're using products like this. And so uh, maybe it's cheating, but I don't have a problem with it. Before we go into protein percentages and and kind of what you recommend for people on when they're trying to hit targets, what's your take on kind of eggs and the egg white and how you can kind of use egg whites to your advantage, even though I think you and I agree that the whole egg isn't bad. It's it's not a bad thing. Can you explain a little bit more before we move on? Because I think that's another really cool tool that you can use when you're trying to bump your protein. Yeah. So I love eggs. <clears throat> this is amazing food. Like yeah, it's just a phenomenal nutrient density. The, uh, uh, the protein, the, the choline, the, uh, the f- uh, fat-soluble vitamins. The egg is amazing. Love eggs. A uh, whole egg is about 30% protein, which is pretty darn good. Like your average person could just eat nothing but eggs, and they're going to have pretty good body composition, and they're going to probably have good health. And, I, I mean, eggs are great. Yeah. I have no problem with eggs. <clears throat> However, if you're... Uh, over fat and you're aggressively trying to lose as much fat as you can and you're trying to increase the pregnant energy ratio of your food. Um, an egg is, is another one of these things where by the time you cook it in butter, add um, half and half or heavy cream to your scrambled eggs, put some cheese on top of it and have a side dish with it. Like by the time you do that, if you dilute the protein out at all, you're actually at a lower protein to energy ratio than you really want to drive some body composition improvements. So I like kind of 50-50 eggs and egg whites. You know, I might eat two eggs and two egg whites. I might eat, um, I usually just buy a carton of egg whites just because it's easier and I'm kind of lazy. So I just buy, (laughs) you know, cage-free egg white carton and I'll have, you know, two eggs and a half cup of egg whites or something. 
And you've really got the best of all possible worlds there. You've basically, um, you're getting all the nutrition out of the yolks, um, but then you're also getting extra egg white protein. And egg white protein is amazing. It has a super low energy density. So you could scramble up a cup of egg whites and just make this massive mound of food. You can make pounds of food for like the highest quality protein known to man, the most the gold standard, highest, most bioavailable protein we've got uh, at like no calories, no fat, no carbs, no nothing. I just protein. So uh, egg white is an amazing product. It's amazing food, uh, but you don't want to miss out of the yolks. So I really like uh, using some of both. Uh, now, if I'm just eating eggs by themselves, I don't have to add extra egg yolk. If I'm just eating hard boiled eggs, like hard boiled eggs are amazing. Yeah. Um, it comes in its own packaging. It's 30% protein. It's really solid. Totally amazing. But if I'm like making an omelet or a scramble and I'm cooking in butter, I'm adding cheese and I'm doing things that are going to lower the protein percent. Uh, yeah, I'm probably going to use 50, 50 eggs and egg whites because, uh, it just makes it even higher protein to energy ratio. And I'm just going to effortlessly automatically eat less calories. And so why not? Yeah. Why not? I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. a really great way when you're thinking about approaching your, your eggs and how you eat them. So now moving on, I think this transitions really well. So, okay. Someone comes to you and they're like, okay, Dr. Naiman, I want to increase the protein percentage in my diet. What I notice a lot of people think though, that that means is just eat more protein and they get overwhelmed by that. They don't know, uh, do I hit a, try to hit a certain gram percentage? Do I just go for protein percentage? So for a real basic kind of approach for each one of us, what do you recommend? Do you recommend them target kind of a meal-based protein percentage, a daily protein grams? What are you recommending and what do you think is the best approach? Uh, I'm really just looking at the total for the day, Okay. right? So it's totally fine to just eat a meal with a ton of protein in it and then later have just like a piece of fruit or for a snack or some snap peas or an apple or something well, that's very low in protein. So it doesn't have to be necessarily every single meal. I'm mostly looking at uh, for the whole day. But you do want to center your major meals and your major snacks around protein if possible. If you ate uh, leaner protein and more of it at this meal, it does give you even more latitude to snack on um, things like fruit or vegetables or things that are lower in protein later on. You know what I mean? So I'm really looking at a daily total. Okay. And you really do want roughly one gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight based on your height. So if you look at like a reference weight for your height, like what should you weigh as a five foot eight? female or whatever, right. you know, you look up your reference weight for your height and that's roughly how many grams of protein you should eat. You can go a little bit higher if you're just super cutting, if you're really shaving off the carbs and the fat, you're going to maybe be even a little bit higher, maybe 1.2, 1.3 grams per pound of ideal body weight. Um, if you're doing, uh, you know, if you're basically, um, bulking, you might want to eat more. If you're really aggressively cutting, you might want to eat more. But for your average person, a gram per pound of ideal body weight is really good. Really good metric. I love that metric. I think that's super easy approach too. Anyone can figure out what their ideal body weight should be plus or minus, And it's a one-to-one -one ratio. I love that. And it's easy to calculate. Basically for women, you want a hundred grams for being five feet tall. And then for every inch over five feet, you add five um, grams of protein. 
Okay. So if you're five foot two female, your ideal body weight would be 110 pounds and you 100 pounds for the first five feet and then five pounds per inch for the two inches with it, which would give you an ideal body weight of 110 uh, pounds and you'd want to eat 110 grams. Or like I'm a five foot 10 male. So for men, it's 110 pounds. Men get to weigh 10 pounds more than women. So if you're a five foot male for the first five feet, you get 110 pounds. And then it's five pounds for each additional inch, just like women. So at five foot 10, I can weigh 160 pounds. It's, you know, 110 for the first five feet. And there's five pounds per inch for the other 10 inches, which is 50 pounds. So uh, 110 plus 50 is 160. Uh, ideal body weight for a five to 10 male is 160 pounds. And you can, you'd want to target 160 grams of protein. I don't know if those were good examples. No, I think that's great. But I mean, bottom line, if you can look up what your ideal body weight is and kind of figure that in, even within a range, you're not going to be far off, right? You're going to be able to right. say, hey, my ideal body weight should be 140 pounds. I should be plus or minus 140, 140 grams of protein a day. And you can track that in your chronometer app. You can just look it up as the day goes on. And I think you can gamify it too. You can you can take Ted's tools of trying to up your protein without upping your carbs and fat too much and see how you can increase that protein percentage by maybe eating more leaner proteins or some of the other protein examples that we gave. What do you think about collagen powder? And do you, do you like that protein option? Do you think it's, it's okay, but it's not ideal? What's your, what's your opinion on that? I see that more and more and I'll use it sometimes if I'm like having kind of my dessert coffee, like I've talked about, mm-hmm. I'll put a couple scoops in my coffee. I have no idea if that's a good thing or not, but yeah, I like the fact that it gives me some additional protein. Right, right, right. So collagen powder, there's nothing really, it's not bad. Every study that made collagen powder look good compared it to a powder that wasn't protein at all. So what they've never done is compare collagen powder to any other protein powder, a whey powder, soy powder, any other plant protein powder. Uh, but So when you actually do look at a whole complete protein like egg white or whey versus collagen, uh, the whey or egg white is better for uh, anabolism just because it's more complete. The collagen um, is not a complete protein. And so I don't like it as much as like a complete protein powder. And so for me, it's like a um, not bad, but I'm certainly not going to go out of my way just because it says collagen and it's going to instantly be good for my joint somehow. That's basically not true. So you can think of collagen as a slightly incomplete protein powder. That's still good because it's protein and it's kind of overpriced because the word collagen is buzzworthy <laughs> for, for literally no good reason, except protein's awesome. So anything that's protein is great. So collagen protein is going to be good, but it's just not as good as an egg white or a whey. Okay. That's great. So do you ever change, we just went through kind of recommended protein grams a day. Do you ever change that recommendation based on someone who's a little bit older, caught it like you're over 60? Um, is there any uh, adjustment to no, that? Not at all. Now, as people get older, they have more anabolic resistance so that they actually need even more protein to accomplish the same building of lean mass like bone or muscle. But a gram per pound of ideal body weight is 
going to work for basically anyone. That's okay. perfectly fine. If you're, if you're trying to be, uh, if you're a, a menopausal female who wants to be a bodybuilder, then yeah, I'm probably going to recommend you're eating 1.5 grams per pound of ideal body weight. So if you're really trying to get extreme with hypertrophy, you're going to have to go even higher uh, than a really young person who has a lot more anabolic efficiency. So honestly, the people who can get away with the very lowest protein intakes are like your super young 20-year-old vegan bodybuilder who has no insulin resistance, uh, no anabolic resistance. They could probably eat 90, 100 grams of protein a day. And as long as they're just doing tons of weight training, they'll still make it happen, Uh, especially if they eat a ton of carbs, which is protein sparing. So like you can actually be a vegan bodybuilder on 100 grams of protein a day if you're young and you're eating a bunch of carbs and you're lifting tons of weight. And so you don't have to have protein necessarily that high. But for the average person, you know, especially as they get older, protein becomes even more and more important. Right. And it seems that we have to kind of continually kind of do exactly what you said, which is build our plate around that protein. And it seems for a lot of us, as we age, that that doesn't always happen. It seems like we at least I always have to kind of encourage my parents and my grandparents like, hey, don't forget about the protein, like build your Mm -hmm. plate around that protein. So I love that. So moving on to kind of we talked a little bit about the timing of meals, kind of ways you can cycle carbs. What what's kind of your ideal timing for you? And do you like to are you kind of a a two meal a day with a snack? Are you no snacking three meals a day? I'm sure no day is exactly the same. At least if you're like me, I switch it up a lot. I I'm not so into this like black and white. This is every day because some weeks, some days are different, but in a typical Ted day, what, what does that meal look like and the timing of it specifically? Gotcha. So I'm not like militant about uh, time restricted feeding. I'm not like forcing myself to be in a window. Like I'm super hungry, but I've got to wait till a certain time to eat. Uh, you know, I, I have shrunk my eating window down to like roughly a 16, eight, but I'm, it's not difficult. It's not hard. I'm not really pushing it. If I'm if I'm really cutting and trying to get thinner, uh, I'm hungrier earlier and earlier in the day. And uh, when I've you know I've just intentionally tried to get down to maybe eight percent body fat at times, and I will wake up hungry, and I'll you know I'll have a twelve hour eating window, so I'm hungrier earlier. But your average day when I'm just like walking around at you know twelve percent body fat or something. I have roughly a 16-8 eating window. I'm usually not that hungry early, so it's more of a uh, time-shifted later eating window, so like noonish and, you know, 6, 7, 8 p.m., and I'll typically have a snack in there somewhere. So it's basically two meals and a snack in an eight-hour window that's more uh, later in the day, and I'm not really forcing the intermittent fasting at all. And um, the meals are basically just centered around protein, some sort of high quality, properly raised animal product. It's like wild caught fish or seafood. It's grass fed beef. It could be uh, poultry or anything like that, Uh, usually with some sort of vegetable. And I'm typically eating a lot of vegetable, a lot of salad, a big salad, you know, every day or something like that. And then like snacks, I might have, you know, a piece of fruit or a couple pieces of fruit or, uh, you know, snap peas are like my favorite snack in the world. So, you know, pounds of this stuff all the time. 
And uh, that's kind of the template of frequently a higher fat, uh, fattier protein, higher fat earlier in the day, and then more carbohydrate later in the day. I like to backload my carbs, so I'm eating more carbohydrate, you know, maybe right before I work out, uh, right after I work out, in the evening, before I go to bed. I'm using carbohydrate strategically because it has some almost drug-like properties where uh, it triggers a parasympathetic rest and digest uh, mode, you know, when you eat carbohydrate. You also get uh, ergogenic benefit, like your your workouts are hard. You can work out harder if you eat some carbohydrate before. Um, so I'm, I'm strategically using my carbs later in the day, before training, after training, before going to bed, after a meal of protein and fat as like just an additional satiety per calorie benefit. Um, so for me, carbs are usually backloaded after protein and vegetables, after training, um, after, you know, something like that, like later in the day. And so that's where I like to partition those. So I'm, I'm like kind of strategic on the carbohydrate, if you know what I mean. Well, I think that's great, but it is different than kind of what a lot of people had been telling us for a long time, which is front load them in the day. And I mm. think what you and I talked about last time was that that can often cause a pretty ravenous trend throughout the day. Whereas I think your, your strategy may help you if you put them towards the end of the day. And like you said, it kind of, uh, kind of helps you in your workout. It also may help you. I mean, maybe even with sleep is what I'm hearing from you and that relaxation. Yeah. A lot of people say, Oh, you want to eat carbs in the morning? Cause that's when you're most insulin sensitive. Well, the reality is your whole body insulin sensitivity is the highest first in the morning, uh, mostly at the level of the fat cells. So your fat cells are really insulin sensitive in the morning, and they're hoping to gobble up any of the calories you eat, right? And it actually, after training, after exercise, after walking around all day in a low-carb state, after doing all this stuff, your muscle insulin sensitivity goes way up and you're way more likely to partition calories into your muscles, including protein and carbohydrate. So that's why I like to backload like more of my calories. I'll eat a bigger meal in the evening than I do in the morning. I'll eat um, more of my carbohydrate in the evening than I do in the morning. And so there's just a number of reasons why I like this stuff later instead of earlier. Um, But, you know, I also don't think that when I eat is nearly as important as what I eat. So I know that I could, if I chose all the right foods, I could probably eat them all in one giant mega meal first thing in the morning. And I would still mostly accomplish the same stuff. So what you eat has got to be at least one or two orders of magnitude more important than when you eat. Um, so for me, just the win you eat just makes it easier to stick to the regimen. I feel better. I perform better. I'm, uh, you know, toggling my sympathetic nervous system when I'm in a low carb state versus parasympathetic when I'm in a higher carb state. I'm, I'm just basically making my quality of life a little bit higher by partitioning when I eat, like playing with the win part, but the, what I eat is mostly what's driving like body composition and health and all that stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I interview a lot of people in the fasting space, I interview a lot of people in the health space, and some people kind of start their health journey with what they eat 
they start with kind of prioritizing protein, building around that plate. And then some people start fasting and then their food choices seem to improve because they feel better. And yet mm-hmm. there's this threshold where if they fast too much, some people then all of a sudden can't make the right food choices. And that's where I know Marty and I have talked about that. You and I have talked about that. Many in this space have. And some people can fast a lot and really have no, no problems. It works for them. You know, for me, I find a really good sweet spot is kind of, I, I joke that I'm a one and a half to two meal a day person most of the time. You know, I kind of, and when I, when I go down to kind of a one meal a day, I find that I'm not making as good of food choices. Uh, Whereas it's just for me, and I realize not, not, I don't assume that everyone is like me. You know, we all are, we all have our unique paths on this, but I feel so much better. I make such better food choices. I feel very satiated if I have that one and a half to two meal a day, kind of most of the time, call it on average. And sure, there's some days where I don't fast at all. And sure, there are some days where I eat one meal and that's all I need and it works. But I think you bring up a really good point that there's very few of us that can't look a little at what we eat. I I think that's a pretty small component when someone says, well, I don't have to worry about what I eat at all. I just, I just fast. And I think, great, if that works for you, but, and maybe you naturally eat really well, (laughs) but a lot of us have to look at what we eat just as much as when we eat. Definitely, definitely. And, and, you know, I I was listening to, uh, like, you know, Peter Atia, who I I really like Peter Atia. I really respect him. I'm also grateful that he's doing all this self-experimentation that I don't have to do. And, you know, he's been really fasting for a couple of years now, you know, three days every month, seven days every quarter, a lot of uh, windowed eating, a lot of like forcing himself to fast for extended periods of time. And uh, honestly, his weight stayed the same and his body fat doubled. He literally lost a bunch of muscle and gained a bunch of fat during this process. And it's, and just from what he said on a recent podcast, it sounds like he's kind of slowly backing away from that. And now he's going to focus more on protein. I mean, he was lifting weights the whole time too. So it's going to be a little bit more of a protein focus and a little bit less of the extended fasting focus. And I think that's pretty good lesson to us all because, you know, when you get really hungry, uh, you're going to eat the peanut butter pretty much. Yeah, you know, the whole jar. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, totally. You know, it's interesting. Uh, again, case study of one, I find that I can kind of ease up my fasting window, if you want to call it or whatever, uh, try to limit my snacking. And I can be pretty, you know, lenient. I'm kind of like you. I'm in the 16-8, maybe the maybe the 18-6 some days, but I'm pretty much a 16-8 as well uh, most of the time now. And every once in a while, I can just do like a reset day and I will just do a one-day fast. And no, I do not recommend that for everybody. Uh, it, it's just what has worked for me. But I find by doing that just every once in a while, it really does reset me. I feel really great, but it doesn't cause me to go to this place of making poor food choices or just raiding the pantry. Whereas for me, for me and my journey, I find that if I'm doing really short windows on a daily basis 
and restricting too much, I'm way more likely to raid the pantry in that model. So it's been mm-hmm. interesting to to play with it. And I want to be strong. You know, I want to I want to have a great um, body composition. Uh, my goal isn't skinny. I want to be I want to be strong. And I think sometimes in our effort to pursue skinny, we don't always make the right food choices. Whereas if we pursue strong, we make mm-hmm. often the right food choices and the right fasting choices, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. So Dr. Naiman, a couple things that are just random ones. When someone gets frustrated and they want to lose body fat and they're trying to use all their tools But they come to you after a week and they say, I haven't lost any weight. I haven't. How do you explain to them the, I guess, the speed of actually fat loss and just a real quick assurance that, you know, kind of, I don't know if it's a 90s mentality, but, you know, we have this mentality that you could just lose body fat in a day, you know, that you could just melt it away. And yet I always say that results that are too fast don't last. It's not body fat you're losing. It's, it's other things. So what assurance do you give someone? And what's the, what, what really re- is realistic when it comes to body fat and losing? Yeah, well, it, it's tricky. Like on one hand, I love daily weight. So right. <clears throat> we have studies that show that people who weigh themselves every day and are really in tune with how much they weigh uh, they're just going to stay thinner because if you're like, oh, wow, I gained 50 pounds. Maybe I'm going to eat just half the bag of Cheetos instead of a whole bag. <laughs> it's like this constant feedback. I, I really get nervous when people come into my office and they, they're like, wow, I haven't weighed myself for a year. And here I go. I'm getting on the scale. And I'm, I know it's going to suck yeah. right? because it's not the way to stay lean. So I love daily weights. But um, everybody just needs to know that you have this massive window that you're just constantly rocketing up and down and you can have pounds of fiber in your GI tract. You have can have pounds of stool in your gastrointestinal tract. Uh, you could have eaten uh, grams of sodium, uh, which, uh, which makes you literally have to drink a gallon of water, which is eight pounds. So like you yeah, have this massive fluid and salt and water shifts. Um, for women, you know, the, the second half of your cycle, when you have more progesterone, totally. you're just like super hungry for salt. You're just like eating freaking pickles and chips and you bacon and you drink like literally it's easy to drink a gallon of water and instantly weigh eight pounds more. Like, I, I, you know, you just have to imagine yourself drinking a gallon of water and getting on the scale and boom, you literally weigh eight pounds, nine pounds more right. than you did five minutes ago. Like that's how dramatic it is. So you have to give yourself at least a five pound window, maybe more that you're just constantly going up and down in every single day, salt, water, progesterone, uh, stool contents, how much insoluble fiber you ate, you know, just really, really big, big shifts. And so it comes down to like weekly averages, like a rolling seven day weekly average. And you can get an app called, you know, like Happy Scale or something. And it'll automatically give you this rolling seven day average. If you're a woman, you almost more have to look at a 28 day average on the same part of your cycle every month to really know where you're going. Um, and you definitely want to zoom way, 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 way out and look at the big picture. I want to know. You know, how much weight are you going to lose in a month, 
in six months, in a year. Um, because it, pretty much anyone who has a goal, let's say, okay, here's my goal. I want to walk around at, you know, this body fat percent. I want to lose, you know, 50 pounds. I want to, yeah. It's going to take you, whatever your goal is, it's going to take you three years to get there. Yeah. You can get halfway there in a year. It'll take you three years to get all the way there. And that's a really slow process. It's definitely a marathon. It's not a sprint. And it's all about just consistency and it's just a grind. So like every single day you're fighting this war of grams where you're literally trying to eat a few grams of fat less than you ate the day before um, or a few grams of carbs less. And so you're just you know, it's all about food choice and consistency and satiety for calorie and fighting this tiny little war of grams every day where you're just trying to shave off a couple grams of fat, a couple grams of carbs um, while you're targeting protein and nutrients and keeping a really high type of calorie. And then zooming way out and looking at like, OK, what was my weight three months ago, six months ago, a year ago? And you have to you have to play the long game. The, the mindset should be, I'm going to eat this way for the rest of my life. I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And I'm going to hit my goal in three years. And, and if you're doing something crazy that you can't picture yourself doing six months from now, don't even do it. You're just totally wasting your time. It has to be consistent and it's just a grind. And you have to do this every day forever. Like I'm doing the same body weight. 10 minute workout thing that I can do in my living room. I'm going to be doing that when I'm 90, right? This is not like, Oh, I'm on some sort of extreme workout thing where I do an hour of CrossFit every day for the next 12 weeks. And then I'll just be exhausted. I won't work out for a year. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all about keeping it really sustainable, really realistic and really consistent and just slowly iterating and progressing on that and having the really long view. Which is which is hard to do, but I do like I do like daily weights. You just have to have the mindset that it could jump up and down very dramatically, just based on all sorts of factors. That point is so good, and I love the idea of a twenty eight day average for females. I think that's a really good thing to highlight because so many people just don't take into account those many things that you said that could swing your weight, and then they just mm-hmm. are like, "Oh, see, I'm done." I'm not going to consistently take those baby steps that I was doing. And, you know, I, I really believe that we're all worthy of things that last and we're worthy of our health journey. And we're, we need to let go of this, this things that are going to be fast because the things that are fast don't last. They don't, you know, they don't. And so I, I love those tools. So on, uh, you know, you and I are both fans of, of Mr. Marty Kendall. So on your strategy, yes. And so on some of his work around data-driven fasting and, and monitoring blood sugars, have you found that by doing your carbs in the evening that it has benefited your waking blood sugars? Because, you know, what I'm seeing in, with some of the, the data-driven fasting community is that when they keep their, their meal at the end of the day a little bit earlier in the day, so they don't eat too late at night, and they don't go too high of fat at that meal, that their blood sugars respond a little bit more positively in the morning for, for some people versus the people that uh, kind of do the opposite. So 
Have you found that? I, I don't know if you're taking your morning blood sugar or if you're still doing that anymore. Yeah, I've worn CGMs for months. And so I, I can tell you for sure that no, the, the timing of my carbs during the day does not influence my morning blood sugar at all. It, my morning blood sugar is 100% about how many grams of fat I ate the day before and how much exercise I did the day before. Okay. So if I just sit on the couch and drink a gallon of heavy cream, the next morning I'm going to have the highest blood sugar I've ever had. Wow. Um, on the other hand, if I just eat like a totally zero fat day, which you know I never do, but like if I get the fat as low as possible and just do a ton of cardio... Uh, the next morning, I'm going to have a really low blood sugar. So it's mostly about grams of fat you ate and how much exercise you did. And carbs really don't have that much to do with it. Carb, you know, a couple hours after you eat carbs, they're gone somewhere. Either they just completely displaced all your fat oxidation until your body burned them up, or they went into glycogen, or you had de novo lipogenesis. Something happened, but it's not really... By the time the next morning rolls around, it, you're not dealing with a carb factor. You're dealing with how much fat you ate or your overall fat balance for the day, which is basically ingested fat minus cardio. And that's why your strategy would work really well for someone who wants to keep their waking blood sugars low, right? If, if they're not overeating fat at their evening meal. Because that may be right. something they want to they want to take a look at. What about now on exercise? Now, are you still? You mentioned your ten minute workouts. I know you're a big fan of just figuring out ways of kind of doing resistance and and body weight things and all things you can do at home. How much are you, do you lift weights? How what are you doing for your exercise today? Is it different from since last time we talked? Gotcha. No, it's really no different. So basically, everybody on the planet should be doing some type of resistance exercise and some type of cardio. And uh, I very specifically fractionate those two things out. And I'm basically doing a full body resistance exercise daily. Uh, it might be as brief as a single set of push-ups, pull-ups, and squats, uh, just like a one set of really hard push-pull legs of failure. Uh, more typically, I'm doing a couple rest-pause sets, so maybe three sets of uh, push, pull legs, body weight daily, um, and then some sort of cardio. It could be jogging, uh, rowing machine, sprinting up hills. Uh, basically, I, you know, I'll walk the dog and I play this game where uh, I run as fast as I can on anything that's uphill, and then I just walk downhill, um, oh, yeah. and then I might just jog on level ground. So I'm basically doing hill sprints uh, based on where I'm at and just what the geography is, which is. Uh, I guess a little harder to do if you live in like Oklahoma or something, but here in the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> we have tons of up and down, so it's really totally. easy to do. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty much every day doing a couple hard sets of push-pull legs, which literally does not take me more than 10 or 15 minutes at the very most, and could be as short as five minutes at the least, and then some amount of cardio. If I'm uh, you know, some days I do a ton of cardio, like I'm addicted to ultimate Frisbee. I might, I might play an hour of ultimate and run six miles and half of it's just sprint intervals. Or I might just do, you know, squat jumps for, uh, you know, I max out on squat jumps, rest 30 seconds, do it again, do a couple sets of that. And that's like five minutes and I'm done. I might just row 500 meters and it takes me a minute and a half. And that's my whole cardio for the day because I'm trading intensity for duration. If I'm pushing the intensity absolutely as high as I can get, 
I can get by with way less volume or duration. Um, or if I'm doing a lower intensity thing, like just, you know, walking, walking the dog or whatever, I'll go for an hour. You know what I mean? So I'm doing cardio every day, trading intensity for duration. And I'm doing resist full body resistance every day. Uh, always trying to get the very highest intensity I can. And then the time factor is always really, really small. Yeah. You know, it was interesting for a lot of years. I just thought I had to run on that treadmill for as long as I could. And that was the, that was going to be the key and a really quick change that didn't, didn't take a lot was that I realized I could cut my half in time and just do more hills and more sprints within that time frame. exactly what mm-hmm. you were saying. And I saw pretty quick results. And then I just added a few more strength type exercises and resistance types exercises, which I hate to generalize, but I often find if you look at a gym, go look at a gym, where are the fittest people in the room? They're not on the treadmill and the elliptical. They are doing resistance type exercises or they're lifting weights. And Uh, once I kind of like that light bulb went off and I don't really go to a gym a lot. I like certain classes, but I do find that that's where a lot of people get frustrated is they're they're spending so much time and yet they're kind of just staying right here. They're not kind of pushing that resistance, pushing that, you know, sprinting, like you said, just getting their heart rate up just a little bit, getting out of their comfort zone. I love how you said one time, it's getting out of your comfort zone now so you can be comfortable later. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it's, it's all for me. It's all about the stimulus to fatigue ratio. I could do an hour of like some CrossFit type jumping around stuff. Like like let's say I do a boot camp sure. where I'm just like doing some really sloppy form burpees and jumping jacks and sprawling around. I'm gonna be exhausted after an hour of that. But I never pushed any of my muscles all the way to failure, and I never pushed the cardio all the way to failure. I was just like flailing and burning calories and so that's a really good way to get super tired and it's not a good way and it's a good way to burn calories but i'd rather eat less calories by tweaking my diet and the protein percentage and then when i am working out have this super high stimulus to really small fatigue and that's what you do with you know really super high intensity perfect form resistance exercise all the way to failure you get this huge stimulus to build muscle for just a tiny bit of fatigue, it's very recoverable. You know, you do uh, one set of push-ups as hard as you can to failure. It's going to take you 40 seconds. You get this massive anabolic stimulus to your pushing chain muscles, uh, but it's super recoverable because, you know, 40 seconds, you can recover from that. Like, no problem. It's just uh, really easy. So I really am all in on this stimulus to fatigue ratio, honestly, on both sides, on the cardio and on the resistance side. And for me, intensity is the most important. Do you find that any of the people that you talk to, that they're overdoing cardio and kind of forgetting about resistance and strength, but, and then they get frustrated and they're not seeing results. Do you, do you see that? Cause I see that it seems like that comes up a lot or someone will say the heaviest I ever was when I was trained, when it was when I was training for a marathon and I'm not bashing anyone if they want to train for a marathon. All I, I want to encourage you on your, on your journey, but I, I do find that kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All of this stuff is on a U shaped curve. 
And honestly, if you're doing, you know, more than about an hour of cardio a day, you start to climb up the other side of the U where it's actually, you're actually going to lose more muscle and your stimulus to fatigue ratio starts going negative. And uh, there's a lot of downsides. Now you have to do that. If you have a goal, if you want to run a marathon, if you want to do an Ironman, you have to do that. And even though it's not optimal, but for most people, there's this definite U-shaped curve and it's like, you probably want to be in the sweet spot, which would be, you know, about, uh, you know, 45 minutes of a low intensity cardio, maybe 30, 20 minutes of a medium intensity cardio, and maybe just 10 minutes of a super high intensity cardio. And so like, so, you know, you want to follow this sort of U shaped curve and not overdo it or underdo it. Same thing with resistance exercise. Like I could spend hours in the gym just doing 10 sets of i could blast my biceps like from every angle and do 10 sets of whatever and i would get like a tiny bit more muscular i would literally build more muscle but the return on investment would be so tiny it just wouldn't be worth my time um So there's this kind of sweet spot to all this stuff that you want to hit. You absolutely want to hit the sweet spot for cardio. You want to hit the sweet spot for resistance. You want to hit the sweet spot for manipulating calories with your diet. And I see people screwing this up all over the place. There are people who never exercise at all and spend so much time worrying about their diet. It's just all diet, 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 diet. How can I shave off a couple calories here and there? How can I get my carbs from... 20 grams of carbs a day to zero grams of carbs a day. Um, it's like every little diet thing. I'm going to make a croissant with <laughs> with steric acid <laughs> instead of, uh, you know, vegetable oil. Like, uh, like and, and at the same time, if your exercise is way down here and you're doing all this diet stuff way up here, you would be so much better off just halfway doing exercise and like just ignoring your diet to the same degree. Like you'd literally be in a better place. So there's so many people out there who never pull the exercise lever. They're never doing cardio. They're never doing resistance. And they're just spinning their wheels, trying to fine tune their diet over and over and over and over and over. They're never going to get the body composition they want or the health they want. Uh, Then you got these other people who are just pounding the cardio. They're just putting in miles and miles and miles. They're literally wearing out their jogging shoes, but they just kind of ignore their diet. And then they'll just eat a bunch of cereal or something. And like, they're just not, not getting where they want to be. I mean, I used to do that. Like I was training for a marathon, but then I'd eat these little sugar goo gel packets. (laughs) I had had all this shit. (laughs) And like, I was literally way fatter. My health was worse. And I was running just, hours my mileage is really high and like you know so i've been i've been in all of these places and so i i know unfortunately firsthand and it took me a long long time to figure it out but you you really want to be in the sweet spot for all this stuff you have to be doing some cardio you have to be doing some resistance you have to be worrying about your diet and you really want to do all of these uh, to a moderate amount because it's going to be so much better for you than just like extreme one thing or the other. Totally. And I, I think that appetite control is so much better too, because I find that when you've taken now, again, there, there's 
everyone's a little bit different, but for the majority of us, when you take that cardio too, too far, it's harder to control your appetite. And again, you kind of go into this, you know, never ending hole of eating all the things. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Naaman today has been fabulous. I have enjoyed our conversation so much. I knew that I would and love having you here. Before we close, can you just tell people how to find you, your book, maybe one last word of advice when it comes to protein? Right, right, right. Okay, so um, uh, basically I'm a primary care doctor up here in Seattle. My practice is unfortunately closed to new patients. So probably the best thing I have to offer people is the book I wrote with William Schufelt. The book is called The P.E. Diet, and you can buy it from thepediet.com or pretty much anywhere um, books are sold online. Uh, I'm also uh, pretty easy to find on Twitter at Ted Naiman, Instagram at Ted Naiman. My advice to everyone is track exactly what you're eating for a week or two and to see where you're at. I'm not suggesting people track forever, but but track for a period of time so you can get the skill of knowing what the heck you're eating. And if people could just get their diet to 30% of their calories and protein, basically entire obesity and diabetes epidemics would collapse. Like you can can literally cure almost every pre-diabetic or diabetic out there with 30% of calories from protein. Hunter-gatherers, worldwide hunter-gatherer macro estimates were about 33% of calories from protein for hunter-gatherers. If you can just get people to do about 30%, their obesity and diabetes goes away. That should probably be everybody's number one concern when it comes to diet. I love that. Well, that's a perfect way to end. Well, thank you, Dr. Naiman. Have a wonderful day. appreciate your time so much. Oh, you too. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Great to talk to you. Cheers. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to write a review and push that subscribe button. I also hope you will come hang out with me on Instagram, Facebook, and my new website, betlucas.com. And remember, friends, be you boldly. The world needs you.